A rich man named Prochorus had hundreds of slaves. And Prochorus's top slave was a slave named Paulus. And uh, Paulus was so trustworthy that Prochorus made him the head slave over all his household and was trusted. But one day Prochorus took Paulus to uh, the slave trade market because they needed to get more slaves for, um, for his estate. Um, and before the bargaining began, the two of them would go and look at all the various slaves who was strong and healthy, who was weak and not gonna be a good slave. So they'd go through, but among the slaves stood a weak, old little man, and Paulus urged his owner, uh, Prochorus, to buy this little old man. And Prochorus said, ah, yeah, he's too old, he's good for nothing. Uh, but, but Paulus said, please, you know, consider, you know, he, he's cheap, and I promise that if you, if you purchase him, I'll make sure the household work gets done better than ever. So reluctantly, Prochorus agreed and purchased the elderly slave, and Paulus made good on his word, and the work did go better than ever around the house. And uh, Paulus made good on his promise. And, and, um, and not only that, but Prochorus ob observed that Paulus now worked for two men. The old slave did no work at all, while Paulus uh, tended to him, gave him the best food, um, you know, uh, made him to rest. And uh, eventually Prochorus got very curious. So he confronted Paulus. He said, who is this old slave? You know I value you, you know I appreciate you, Paulus, but but I don't mind your protecting even this old man, but tell me who he is. Is he your father who's fallen into slavery? And Paulus answered, it's someone to whom I owe more than to my father. Your teacher then, Prochorus said, no, somebody whom I owe even more. Who then, who then is he? And he said, this is my enemy. Your enemy? Yes, he's the man who killed my father and sold us the children as slaves. Prochorus stood speechless. As for me, said Paulus, I am a disciple of Christ who has taught us to love our enemies and to reward evil with good. What an amazing story that is. I'll tell you, um, there's a love that goes so far beyond what you and I can imagine. And a lot of us, it's so far from us, we dismiss it as, well, that's just kind of crazy. What would you do if you were in Paulus's you know, slave sandals um, what would you do if you found the guy that murdered your father and sold you as children into slavery? Um, but there's a love that Jesus asks of his disciples. And, and I love how this slave was one who took that challenge seriously. And that challenge, it comes from our text tonight here in Matthew chapter five. Let's take a look and read what this man's life was changed by. And ours hopefully will be too. Matthew chapter five, verse 43. There Jesus continues his Sermon on the Mount and he says, you have heard that it hath been said, thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be the children of your father which is in heaven for he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sendeth rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love them which love you, what reward have you? Do not even the publicans the same? And if you salute your brethren only, what do you more than others? Do not even the publicans so? Be ye therefore perfect, even as your father which is in heaven is perfect. Does anybody feel a little challenged by that last phrase? <laughs> Be perfect uh, as the Father which is in heaven is perfect. Now, if you're just joining us in our study of the Sermon on the Mount, one of the things you have to realize is that the Sermon on the Mount is, if you really read it honestly, you realize <clears throat> it's impossible. None of us can keep the Sermon on the Mount. Just that last sentence, be perfect as the Father in heaven is perfect. You'd be like, uh, that's probably not gonna happen. And there's even other scriptures that tell us not, that's not gonna happen. <clears throat> but we need to remember what the Sermon on, on the Mount is all about. Jesus is preaching to believers. This isn't evangelical. He's not trying to give people an altar call at the end. He doesn't even speak of the way of salvation. 
Uh, let's see if anybody was listening. Do you recall Jesus tells all the problems with humanity and, and how far short we fall from righteousness and he doesn't give us the answer to that problem. Why, anybody? Because Jesus is the answer. His life after preaching this sermon would be the answer to the, the problem of our sinful depravity. Now all that said, you don't take the Sermon on the Mount and say, well, we can't do it, so chalk it off as just nothing. No, we, we realize it's still the goal. You and I should still make it our goal to live as Jesus explained the life of the person of the Sermon on the Mount. We do fall very short from that. And, and just FYI, the word perfect there is an interesting uh, Greek word. The Greek word is teleos, and it means, um, it means um, fully matured. It doesn't mean like perfect without any flaws whatsoever, but, but the fully matured believer, what do they do, the mature one? Well, he's gonna be one, she's gonna be one who loves her enemies. They're gonna be people who do good to those people that have hated them. And they'll pray for those who despitefully use uh, and persecute. This is what Jesus challenges us with. This passage is so heavy and it seems so impossible, but, but I think we need to, to take time and say, Lord, would you please soften our hearts and help us to be more like this? Um, the problem is today, I believe we're living in a day where this idea of loving your enemy is so far gone. And, and frank, frankly, uh, the Americanized Christian, we've become just like the publicans. We, we love people we love, but we hate people we hate. We're just like the rest of the world. And you see that whether you're watching CNN or Fox News or um, Breitbart or you know, uh, you know, Newsmax or whatever. You see, there's, there's just general vitriol and hatred for people uh, because of their ideologies, because of what they believe or who they voted for. It's, it's kind of profound how it, it's become so common for us just to say, well, they're that kind of person, so I, I hate them. Well, you may not say that, but the hateful things we think and the hateful things we say about them or uh, you know, even to them, it's kind of the world we live in now. The, the, the lost love that the Lord has asked his church to be, this is something I hope the Lord will peel back the calluses, splash the cold water on our face tonight and wake us up and remind us how far we are because uh, this is a somber, sober, sobering call to love our enemies. And there's some things we need to do to really understand this. First of all, let's talk about love's definition. Number one, if you're jotting down notes, maybe you can follow along with me here. But number one, love's definition. It's interesting how the world has its definitions and we've bought into that, like they're real. But there's a lot of definitions that aren't real. Um, uh, let me give you a few of the world's definitions. Um, well, for example, um, the wrong definitions of love uh, is this. Remember if you're from the 70s, remember the movie Love Story? <laughs> All the older people are like, yeah. Remember, love means never having to say you're sorry. <laughs> That's just stupid. But in the 70s, that was the definition of love never having to say you're sorry, or, or the definition of love. Some of you guys, well, that means you've scored zero in tennis. Well, that's a different kind of love, uh, but it's not the love we're talking about. Um, so, you know, I've noticed the atheists, they've had to kind of redefine what love is. And if you've noticed the secularist, the atheist, the agnostic has to t almost take a sinister look at love. And it's almost like they're saying, you know, love is just a chemical reaction that compels animals to breed. And then it slowly fades, leaving the, the person stranding or the animal stranded in a failing marriage, bleak, uh, breaking, you know, we need to break that cycle, rise above and focus on science only. Uh, have you ever noticed there's some atheists have kind of said, yeah, love is kind of a lost thing altogether. Um, if you're from certain groups, maybe uh, love's definition is, ooh, baby, don't hurt me, don't hurt me no more. What's love got to do with it? Or whatever music you listened to when you were <laughs> growing up. Um, but it's funny how our, our musicians often define love and that's pretty embarrassing. So what we need to do is go from the world's view of love and kind of forget all that and go, what is the biblical definition of love? And, and actually the words that are used in the Greek New Testament are really um, part of that definition, it's helpful. And maybe you've been through this before, it's always good for us to review this though. Um, th there's some argue uh, eight or even nine words in the Greek New Testament that describe the word love. Uh, we have one word for love in the English language. It's a little clumsy, I might add. I love hot fudge Sundays, but I also love my wife and I love the Lord. 
Um, are all those the exact same love? Well, no, they're very, very different. But the Greek words go more in detail. The first word that we'll bring up is, uh, I'll give you four of the, the ones that are the major players, storge, which is a word of affection. Um, you would use it to talk about your family pet. Uh, I storge, Fido. Uh, you love your dog, um, that's storge. Eros, of course, is that erotic, physical, kind of sexual sort of love. The Greeks were very fond of talking about erotic love in their uh, uh, particular writings and what have you. So Eros took a, a high profile place in the Greek culture, Hellenistic culture. And then the word phileo is that word, uh, you know, where it means brotherly love. Or uh, it's, it's one, you know, hey, love you, bro, kind of thing, a, a reciprocating kind of love. I love you, you love me. Uh, it's kind of Barney sort of love. If you, uh, it's good, it's a good thing, but it, it's, uh, that's kind of the idea. The, the fourth and most important, of course, is the word agape. Now, agape is the Greek word for love that's used in the Bible uh, a lot, speaking of God's love, uh, unconditional love giving for the sake of giving love, not expecting anything in return. Um, it's a perfect kind of love. First um, John 4, 8, 1 John 4, 16 tells us that God is agape. So it's this perfect, holy kind of love that we as Christians should sit up and take notice. This is the amazing love um, uh, that, that Jesus often talked about. So the question is, is this the kind of love Jesus is referring to here in our text? Um, the answer is kind of. Kind of? Yep, I'm gonna leave you hanging there. Um, uh, because it's not exactly the word, but it's kind of the word. Um, but, but it is related to, the root of the word that Jesus used is the root, the word agape. But, um, but there's something that's a little nuanced twist that I wanna show you a little bit later. Um, but this amazing agape love is the kind of love God has for us. And it's my opinion that we as a culture have moved further and further away from the love of God. And we've, we've really lost the art of loving one another. It's so, so sad. Jesus talked about this in Matthew 24 when he says, there's some of the signs of the times, the end of the world. Jesus said, after there'll be wars and rumors of wars, which is what we talked about last night at our prophecy update, if you wanna catch up on that. Um, but we talked about Jesus saying wars and rumors of wars, but nation will rise against nation, ethnicity against ethnicity. He, he talks about the end times, but he also says, and because of iniquity shall, uh, shall abound, the love, agape, of many shall wax cold. One of the signs of the end times is that the love of many will wax cold. Uh, the, the idea is agape. Uh, we, agape will become scarce in the last days. And this is one of the many reasons, by the way, I believe you and I could be living possibly in the last days because we're seeing that kind of agape, unconditional, sacrificial love. It's hard to find. But that's the love of Christ and that's the love that Jesus taught us. Um, and the question is, have you and I become comfortable with sort of, you have learned that it's been said of old, love your neighbor as yourself, but hate your enemy. Have you and I become comfortable with that? That's the biggest question I think I have to ask this evening. Because it's gotten so easy, maybe even hip and cool, for us to sort of speak hateful things about people that have different worldviews than we do, or different persuasions, or different activities, or attitudes. Um, we have to be really careful. And, and I'll just tell you, the world is just looking for you to fail in this. If a Christian ever displays any form of hatred, they'll be quick to say Christians are hateful and they've jumped on that bandwagon. Now, I think you can find hateful Christians in the world. And I wish I could say we were doing better at being uh, full of agape as Christians, but I think the world all also uses that as a cop-out. I think there's a lot of loving Christians around and the world just finds the, f the few that are going around being hateful and then they'll major on those people. But, but that's, that's neither here nor there. The question is, how are you doing with agape? Do you love unconditionally, even not just your friends, even the publicans? Well, what about the Democrats, Pastor Brett? Uh, no, not Republicans. The publicans, that's a group of people in the New Testament. They were people that were rip-off artists, sinners. They were the, the, they were, you know, the hoodlums, uh, the criminals. That's the publicans uh, in, in the Bible. And so um, here's Jesus saying, even the sinners, the publicans go around loving their friends. 
But what about you? As Christians, we are called to a much higher standard to love our enemies, uh, to do good to those that hate us. Um, and the problem is sometimes I think because we've lost the whole focus of this love, we look just like the world. It was Jonathan Swift, uh, the satirical author of Gulliver's Travels uh, back in the 1600s. He said, we have just enough religion to make us hate, but not enough to make us love one another. Interesting observation from the 1600s, but I believe that's more true today than it's ever been. You know, um, by the way, um, one thing that you should know is our text tells us um, that God um, is telling us through Jesus, love your neighbor as yourself. You've heard it been said though, hate your enemy. Did God ever say hate your enemy? No, and that's something kind of interesting because in the previous parts of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus will say stuff. You've, been, you've heard that it's been said of old, you know, that thou shalt not murder. But I say unto you, and, and as it turns out, Moses wrote that. I have, I, he said, I, thou shalt not murder. And Jesus said, but I say unto you, which we talked about that on Wednesday night, Jesus was putting himself over Moses. That would have freaked the Jews out, by the way, at that time. But now when Jesus says this, he's not quoting Moses exactly. He quotes Moses' love your neighbor as yourself. But then he quotes what is the common teaching of that day and hate your enemy. And the Pharisees of that day were teaching that, hate your enemy. So religion started to take on the vibe of hate. The Pharisees of Jesus' time, they had enough religion to make hate, uh, but not to love one another. Uh, the Pharisees believed the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, the Pharisees taught that they were existing for one purpose, to be fuel, to fire the fire of hell. Uh, that's why a Gentile existed, the Jews said. Now, uh, don't be anti-Semitic because of that. Uh, we've been just as sinful as the Jews. The, and the Jews have a plan and God's got a plan for the Jews and he's gonna do a great work with the Jews still. We, lo we love the Jewish people. But that in Jesus' time, it got ugly. The, the Gentiles are just to fuel the fires of hell. That was our purpose. So love was gone. So when Jesus said this with the Pharisees standing by, they would have probably freaked out and said, what? You've heard by them saying of old, Pharisees understanding right here, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But God never did give that green light to hate our enemies. So um, basically we look at number one, love's definition. The word is this unconditional kind of love that goes way past any other worldly kind of love. Number one, love's definition. Number two, we look at love's direction. One of the things about doing what Jesus tells you and me to do here is it gives you clarity of what you should be doing um, on just day-to-day -day stuff. Oh, big things too, but I, I wonder if the direction that we get by doing what Jesus tells us to agape, unconditionally love, even not just our friends, but our enemies, I wonder if this should be the greatest guide that you and I perhaps can have. I, I love the word of God because it's the word that's a lamp into our feet and a light into our path. Remember we talked about that? The, the, the Bible is like a flashlight for us in this dark world. But at the same time, this notion of loving your enemies, this is a good guide. And, and man, we should listen to that perhaps more and more um, in many of your life choices. Uh, so Brett, are you suggesting that I love my neighbor next door neighbor, even though they're a total jerk? Yep. You mean, I, I, should I be able to blow my leaves from my lawn into their lawn just to kind of get back on? Because they, Brett, Pastor Brett, the, the, they blow their leaves on my lawn. I'm just blowing them back on it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love even your enemies. But Brett, he voted for, wait, wait, wait. He, love goes way past to do that. Unconditional uh, you know, love is what you and I are called to do. Um, some of you would say, but my coworker, Brett, you want me to love my, man, she's a jerk. She always tries to make me look bad when the boss is around. Um, and, 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 and just because they don't know how to work and they try to cover up their thing and should I really, yep, love, love your enemy. How are you supposed to love her? But Brett, she takes credit for all the, love. But Brett, she tells lies about love. Like this is, this is a good guide for you. That person at work that drives you nuts, should you get back at them, get even with them, make them look bad? Nope, love. Love your neighbor, love your enemy. What a great compass. 
You can know if you're doing what God wants you to do to be loving. Now, I know this gets a little bit more complicated because there are things that sometimes are evil, evil deeds that people are doing. And if it's, in, it's within our power, we need to be able to stop some of those things. So there is a place and a time to, and, and, a, and a right way to go about it. Blowing leaves on your neighbor's lawns, probably not the way to go about it. Uh, if there's something wrong going on with your neighbor. Um, if there's really something wrong, there's probably proper channels to go to, to fix you know, what's going on with the neighbor. Um, but still, you're called to love. The reason I say that is because I always get emails, well, bro, what if, what if I'm, you know, like there's people that are in horrible situations. Am I supposed to love that person? Um, let's say, you know, there's a, uh, let's think of the kind of the worst situation we can think of. Uh, a, a wife being abused physically by her husband. And I'm just supposed to love my enemy, so I'm gonna stay in the house and be abused. Is that really what the Bible says? No, no, that, that woman, uh, one of the most loving things she can do is to get out of that house and get some help. And that the most loving thing the church can do is to stop the man from beating his wife. Like we have to keep things in perspective and people get a little bit funny about those things. If you wonder or have questions about, should this be a, should I, you know, you know, do something legally or, or take action against this person that's wronging me? Or should I be unconditionally loving? You know what I found about that question? There's safety in a multitude of counselors. And if you're in your own little mind thinking, I'm gonna retaliate, you're in dangerous territory. I find that there's real safety. Just ask somebody, hey, you know, this person's doing this. Uh, should I, what should I do? Should I love them as, you know, loving my enemies? Or should I report them to the IRS or to the police? Uh, and your friends will help you. And if you don't have any friends, no problem. We have a pastoral staff here that would love to answer your phone calls and, we, and safety in a multitude of counselors. So there is a, a time to act and to do things. Um, you know, uh, for example, abortion is something that we as uh, Christians think is really wrong. But we don't go and blow up abortion clinics. Um, that's what they do. They, they blow up uh, like the one over here in Gresham. They threw the firebomb in. Um, but what, what, what do we do? Well, we, we, we're gonna love our enemies. We're gonna try to do good to those that are persecuting and hurting us. But at the same time, we're gonna try to vote and make a difference so that that doesn't happen anymore. Uh, that's, love is not, I call that sloppy agape, uh, where you just do stuff because, well, we're supposed to love, so let all the abortions continue to happen. Uh, no, that's not real, true love. Love cares about the, the uh, unborn baby as well. I, I know that might sound ridiculous, but you'd be shocked how many people struggle with these kinds of things. How am I supposed to love my enemy but at the same time, if they're doing something wrong or illegal or immoral, uh, should I just let it continue to go? The answer is no, but there's safety in a multitude of counselors. Love can be one of the best compasses, moral compasses you can have in this world. A navigator depends on a compass. I remember as a kid, I loved my compass. I'd bring it with me everywhere. And you know, we'd go hike up in the mountains behind our house and you, know, you never get lost or lose direction because if you know how to use a compass, um, even scuba diving, uh, it's, it's kind of a cool tool to know how to use a compass. Uh, I got to be there with Deb when we got our advanced diving. And it was really kind of cool because they took us uh, in the ocean where there was, remember the currents, Deb? It was like huge currents, which drag you every which way. And they wanted you to navigate in advanced diving, a perfect square, 70 feet under the water. Um, and you had to use your compass. Meanwhile, you're being pushed by currents every which way, and it's real easy to get off course. Uh, and, uh, and it's kind of cool. I love the compass for its trueness. Now, if you don't know, a compass, why does it work? It was built so that it responds to the magnetic field that the earth puts out. It's part of the earth's makeup. The compass is responsive, if you would, to the nature of the earth that we live on, and so it always points to, to north, uh, as it turns out. So it is with Christian love. Love is true north, if you would, for all of us. And if you're, if you're loving your enemy, loving your neighbor, uh, then you're going the right direction, right there. Uh, the nature of God is love, God is agape, and the person who knows God and has been born of God, the Bible says, um, you will respond to God's nature. Um, as a compass naturally points north, a believer naturally will practice love because it's in the nature of God. That's what we as Christians do. Um, so that's kind of an important thing. If you wanna have uh, that, that uh, guidance, should I retaliate to that person who wronged me and be upset and angry? Or should I love my enemy? Um, it's a great direction 
uh, love's direction. So you've got uh, love's definition, agape, unconditional perfect love, love's direction. It guides us in decision-making. But thirdly, we have love's distinction. The Bible puts love way at the top of the list of, of everything. Love is the overarching theme. It's the biggest deal. Um, we could talk about faith. We could talk about hope. We could talk about all kinds of things, but love. We could talk about prophecy and a word of prophecy or speaking in tongues or doing all kinds of religious things, casting out even demons or crazy stuff. Love is the key. First Corinthians 13, you guys know it well probably, many of you. Uh, Paul said, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have pr prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Man, that, that, the, the absolute language of this, I am nothing, I gain nothing. Um, you know, you are nothing without love. So then you kind of start wondering, how valuable am I to the Lord? Am I a person that I could be speaking with tongues? And, you know, uh, maybe you're not into that. Maybe you're having knowledge. Maybe you're a knowledgeable person. You know, one of the pitfalls of being a biblically knowledgeable person is I've, I've noticed over the years with some of the smartest Bible students I've ever known is that they can often lack love. Oh, they know every verse and chapter and they know all the, the, the hermeneutics and dispensational principles but they've somewhere lost the, the love that, that God requires. And man, how desperate they need love. Because you can have all knowledge, it says, but, and all faith, but if you don't have love, you're nothing. And then at the end of this chapter of 1 Corinthians 13, he sets the precedent. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is agape, love. Uh, more than faith, more than hope, love is the key. According to the inspired word of God, spiritual gifts, no matter how exciting and wonderful, are useless and perhaps sometimes even destructive if they're not ministered in love. Um, it's been well said that uh, love is the circulatory system of the body of Christ. Kind of like our bodies have the circulatory system where blood goes through and keeps life-giving oxygen applied to all of our extremities. Uh, without blood flow, you'd be toast. Same thing is true with the church of Jesus Christ, the body of Christ. It's rightly said that, that love is the circulatory system. I also appreciate so much how the Old Testament gives us the law, but then the law would eventually become summed up by love because the law kills. But if you recall, remember when we were back in Micah, when Micah summed up uh, what, what the law would be summed up by? Micah chapter six, verse eight. He hath showed thee, O man, you remember this? What is good and what doth the Lord require of thee? But to do justly, number one, to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. Um, this is what the Lord requires of us. I love how in some ways, Micah the prophet took it from 613 laws to just three. And then they tried to get Jesus to comment on this when they asked Jesus in Matthew 22, verse 36. It says, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. The second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments, hang all the law and prophets. You can hang the whole law and prophet on are you loving God and are you loving people? I love the simplicity uh, that Jesus brought. So from Micah three, from Jesus two, and then Paul the apostle boils it down just to one word. Galatians chapter five, verse 14. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love's kind of a big deal. And when we read Jesus commenting on love, we can rationalize why we, we may not call it hate, but that's, if we're honest, what it is. Um, and we may not admit that we have a problem here, but you know, you know what it is when you are around that person that drives you nuts and your dander gets up, your blood pressure rises when somebody mentions their name. 
somebody who's wronged you, somebody who's sinned against you, somebody who's ripped you off, somebody who's said bad things about you. And man, there's this unforgiveness that burns in your soul. And you say, oh, I know I'm supposed to forgive and I know I'm even supposed to love, but no way. And so you try to just push it back in your mind and say, yeah, whatever. But every time that name is mentioned, your blood boils. Every time that wrong that was done to you, somehow you remember, and there's a, there's a bit of hatred burning in your soul. And that really brings us to the fourth of these notions. Number one, love's definition. Number two, love's direction. Number three, love's distinction. But number four, love's difficulty. This unconditional agape love, I'm just gonna admit right here and right now, it's, tr- it's tough. It's tough to love your enemy. To, to, to just, it's hard enough to love your neighbor, let alone your enemy. Uh, that's hard. And I'm just gonna be honest with you, it's hard. And I'm gonna even say it might even be impossible apart from the Lord's help. You and I really cannot do this, be perfect as I, the Lord, am perfect. Good luck with that, especially in your own strength and in your own abilities. Love's difficulty, man, just, just being a loving person, that just doesn't come naturally. You know what comes naturally? You and I are natural at bitterness. That comes really naturally. Have you ever noticed that? Being bitter is just natural flow of gravity. Bitterness, vindictiveness, retaliation, payback. Like these things come quite naturally in the human sinful condition that you and I have. And so when somebody's wronged you over the years, man, if there's a chance to get them back, to take them down a notch or two with a comet or with a, with a you know, bringing up some failure or some stupid thing they did, Man, that comes really naturally. How can we possibly love our enemies? How can we become like that slave in Rome that got to a point where when he saw the very person who killed his own father, sold him as a child into slavery, and then said, I'm gonna love my enemy, take care of him, feed him, make sure that he's well cared for. How do you get to that place? The answer is the Lord. The Lord is the only one that can get you to that place, but he can do it. But there's a couple little hints I wanna give you about this. And I I think this is gonna be really important. It might sound overly simple, but it's it's actually a little harder than it might look, but it it is simple. Uh, What do you mean? Well, let me, on this difficulty of love, let me just give you a few helpful tips. Not that I have this down by any stretch of the imagination myself. Uh, I'm working toward that, but I've got a long ways to go. Um, but the first thing I would say that you need to note is you gotta first change your mind. And you and I can do that. Changing your mind is actually not the hard part. Um, because when you hate someone's guts, um, changing your heart, there is a tall order. You can sit around saying, okay, I hate that person, so I'm gonna not hate them anymore. So I don't hate you. I don't hate you. I don't hate you. And you can say that till you're blue in the face but your heart's still saying, I think I hate you more saying it after all those sentences than I started. It's like uh, if I told you, don't think about a pink elephant. And what are you guys all thinking about? Pink elephant. It's because hatred is just like a toxic cancer that just wants to spread in your soul. And, and, and you can just tell yourself, you know, um, yeah, I, I'm gonna feel love, but it's really hard to just make that happen. You can't change your heart. But you know what you can do? You can change your mind. There's another biblical word for changing your mind. Does anybody know what it is? Yes, repentance. Repentance, that's what it means, change your mind. So when you look at that person say, I'm now gonna change my mind and I'm gonna choose to love this person. Well, Brett, I can say that till I'm blue in the face, but do I really feel love for that person? Here's where we make a huge mistake. Um, And this is where I didn't give you the full definition of the word agape as employed by Jesus in Matthew chapter five. Remember, I told you the the, the four words, storge, eros, phileo, but then there was agape, the big one. And we defined it, uh, the Greek word, unconditional, given for the sake of giving love, not expecting anything in return. But that's not exactly the word that Jesus used. The word that Jesus used here is, and you might say, oh, whatever, potato, potato. Um, But here it is, agapeo. You say, well, big deal, what's the difference? Uh, if you look in your you know, Greek dictionary and, or the Strong's Concordance or whatever tools you use, there's so many good tools now. The word agape, 
What's the difference between agape and agapeo? You see the definition of agapeo is to show love, demonstrate love, and even take pleasure in showing love. That's this word agapeo. Um, for you linguistic experts and smart people that, and I wasn't one of these people in school, uh, English class and all that was one of my uh, banes of my existence. But does anybody know what the main difference between these two words are, anybody? One's a verb, correct. Whoever said that, you get extra points today. Um, that's great. Yeah, agape is a noun. Agapeo is the verb form of the word agape. You say, oh, Brett, great. And more you know, grammar and stuff. We don't want to, no, this is important because agape is something, a person, place, or thing, noun. Uh, it's, it is defining love and it's a kind of love that's defined as a noun. But agapeo is the action of that agape to actually show agape. Uh, to demonstrate agape and even take pleasure in the act of showing agape, even when you still are struggling with hatred, you can agapeo someone. You may not be able to fully realize agape in its full sense in your heart, but your brain, you can choose to agapeo because it's a verb. So instead of blowing the leaves over to your neighbor's yard, you go into your neighbor and you blow their leaves off onto your property and then rake them up and then bag them up and take them. And your neighbor will think, my neighbor has truly lost his mind. <laughs> no, you agapeoed your neighbor. You, you, you actually demonstrated a loving behavior, even though your heart's still saying, I hate him as you're raking. I hate him, I hate him, I hate him. But here's what happens. When you start to change your mind and do agapeo, that's what Jesus said when he said this, all the word love, every single time in Matthew five, he's using the word agapeo, it's an action. So you are to actively do things that are loving to those that are your enemies. Um, and that's kind of important, kind of interesting. Um, by the way, uh, there's some other words here that are really kind of fun too. For example, the word um, bless. Check out the word bless. In our text, it says, um, in Matthew chapter five, it says, um, uh, but I say to you, love, that's agapeo, um, your neighbor. Um, uh, but it also says in verse 44, um, love your enemies, agapeo, and bless. And the Greek word for that is eulogio. Uh, guess what word we get from that word? Eulogy. What's a eulogy? It's saying nice things about dead people. Uh, I've, I've done uh, hundreds and hundreds of funerals. I've heard eulogy after eulogy, and here's how that goes. You know, there's the person in the box, pine box, and our dearly departed brother, he was kind of a jerk, but nobody's gonna say that because he's our dearly departed brother, and he was such a nice guy and everything, and kind of. See, a eulogy tends to kind of say nice things. It's like when your mom said, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. Well, at a memorial service, you kind of got to start eulogizing. Speak only well of the, 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 the dead. Give thanks to, act kindly toward, praise. That's what this Greek word eulogio means, to praise, speak well of, give thanks to, act kindly. So when Jesus says, um, you know, love your enemy, that's agapeo, actively show love to them, but it also says bless them that curse you. So while your enemies are saying horrible things and cursing you, you and I are supposed to eulogio, verb, Praise, speak well of, give thanks to. Well, what if, what if I don't wanna say anything nice? Um, find something. Find something nice to say about your enemies because that's what Jesus tells us to do in no uncertain terms. He doesn't give us any wiggle room here. If you're not willing to do that, you're just rejecting what Jesus is telling us to do. And the reason I say that is there's a stubborn streak in me that wants to say, well, they're saying bad things about me. So I should say bad things, that's retaliation. But that's not this kind of agapeo sort of love. Uh, this is where the word eulogy is, or to eulogize, it's another action word. So we say love, agapeo, bless, eulogio, which is to speak words of kindness and well of. But it's not just love and bless, he also says, and do good to them. That's more action, do good to them that hate you, and then the fourth thing you're supposed to do here in verse 44, pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Man, this is a challenge. So, so what you gotta do is change your mind and say, I'm going to do an about face and I'm gonna start action words. I, I, my heart may not be there. I may still in my heart burn with hatred. 
but I'm gonna change my mind and I'm gonna act lovingly toward that person. And I'm gonna, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, agapeo and I'm gonna eulogio and I'm gonna do good works. And then listen, this is a big one. I'm gonna pray for my enemy too. I think Jesus puts this on at the end because obviously prayer is powerful. But one thing I've discovered in my life, have you ever noticed how hard it is to be mad at someone when you're praying for them? Have you ever noticed how bad it is to pray for somebody that you hate? Because it usually comes out one of several ways when I've done this over the past, years and years ago. (laughs) When I said, okay, I'm gonna pray for my enemy. Lord, would you please make their brain into a pink mist? Well, that's, what's wrong with that prayer? Well, the Bible says that's asking amiss because if you're asking stuff in the name of Jesus that doesn't really line up with his heart, his character and nature, and when you pray those horrible prayers, Lord, would you please cause that person to die? Um, the Lord, the Lord he, you know what? It's hard to pray that uh, before the Lord unless you're super callous toward God and his word. Like you have to be a hardened mega sinner to pray a prayer like that. But even the hardened sinner kind of goes, yeah, I probably shouldn't pray that, that my boss's head would explode. (laughs) So then you try to tame it down. Lord, I pray that my boss would be fired. (laughs) But even with that, the Lord says, man, you deserve to be fired. The Lord reminds you that you're a sinner. See, that's the problem. When you start praying, it's embarrassing to pray to the true and living God and be vindictive and hateful. And, and, and it may, it's almost like the Lord shines a light on it. When you're in prayer, the Lord says, do you see what you're doing right now? It's hard to, with a, sis, a sincere face, pray to the Lord, Lord, please destroy my enemies. Even the psalmist in Psalm 73 said, Lord, why do the wicked prosper? And he goes on and talking for you know, verse after verse after verse about how frustrated he is that the wicked people are prospering. But then he said, oh, wretched me. I'm a sinner in that I, I see the way their end is gonna, they're gonna end up in total destruction. <clears throat> and he realizes that he had no compassion for the ungodly. He was just bitter. And the Lord would say to you and me the same thing. Something about praying for your enemies, man. The Lord will soften your heart. And see, that leads us to the next sort of hint that I'm giving. I told you the first hint was change your mind. And you say, well, that's great. And I can do that. I I think I can change my mind and do loving things. But what about that heart part? Well, that's where the second point of this, you change your mind. And then number two, let God change your heart. Now there's a secret to this. The secret is this. If you don't change your mind, God won't change your heart. You're just gonna stay angry and and hateful. But it's after you change your mind. This is what I've discovered in my own walk, in my own life. Once I repent and change my mind about what I'm gonna do about this person, then the Lord says, okay, I can work with that. You can't change your heart, but God can. Your soul is hard to change. You can hate that person till the cows come home. But if you change your mind and say, I'm gonna act lovingly, I'm gonna say kind words about that person, I'm gonna pray for them, I'm gonna do good to them, then you leave the rest up to the Lord. And you know what happens pretty soon? You're like this slave in Rome that says, I'm gonna do what Jesus told me to do and I'm gonna love this person. Um, and, and, and it gets ridiculous how you can almost start to, when you're praying for your enemies and you're loving them, it's amazing. You start pouring into their lives and you're, and, you're, and you're trying to make them do better, be better. And pretty soon you find a place in your heart, even as horrible as they've been to you, you find compassion and you find love. So you change your mind and then let God change your heart. You know, uh, you know back to our text here, these, these last few verses, I can't, leave without commenting on these. Look at verse 45. It says, if you do that, everything we just talked about, um, it, it says you'll be in good shape. It says, verse 45, that you may be the children of your father, which is in heaven. If you're truly the children of God, you're gonna see love. Agape is part of the deal. If you're a child of God, there's other scriptures that say that as well. For he that maketh the sun to rise on the evil and on the good, and sends uh, rain on the just and on the unjust. In other words, your job is not to be vindictive and pay back. Vengeance is mine, saith Lord, I will repay. Now I've heard this before from people, even atheist Greekers. Pastor Brett, vengeance is mine, the Lord says, I will repay. I'm just being like the Lord. God is vengeful, I'm gonna be vengeful. I've actually heard somebody say that before. Anybody know what's wrong with that? 
yeah, you're not God. Hello, did you hear what I just said? You're not perfect. God can be full of vengeance because he's perfect. And his vengeance is perfectly righteous, mine is not. Um, And I don't even know what righteous vengeance looks like, honestly, nor do you. Only the Lord knows what's right. And when we die and go to heaven and stand before his throne, one thing that's gonna be a big shocker to you and me is we're gonna stand before the throne and say, wow, righteous and true are his judgments. We'll say he knew what he was doing all along and we had no clue whatsoever. You know, I wonder if, if, if only we could see what our enemies have been through. God sees all that. God sees that enemy at work that you hate and how they were abused as a child and beaten and thrown in a closet or how they were, you know, through all kinds of tragic things in their lives that you have no idea about, but you're just there at work, what a jerk. Why is that person so weird? And the Lord says, yeah, but I see the whole story of that person. And you know what? I have a compassion for them. I've got a place in my heart for them that you need to have too. That's why you're supposed to love your enemies. Leave the vengeance part to me. You just are responsible for the love part. So the sad truth of this is there's gonna be different people walking out of this sermon tonight. There's gonna be different people watching online. And once you click off and say, okay, I'm out, Um, The question is, what are you gonna do with this? Because I find myself challenged every time I read the Sermon on the Mount so profoundly, it's dizzying. But the question is, what are you gonna do? Some of you, well, you know, it's funny because uh, Jesus talked about the sowing of the word and how 25% actually the seed brings forth good fruit. The other 75%, whether it was plucked up by the birds of the air, which is Satan, or gets trampled by the world uh, or plucked up by, or you know, choked out by the thorns, the various types of soil. I would just say to you tonight, man, what kind of soil do you have on this topic? Because some of you are gonna go away from this place just saying, yeah, whatever, Pastor Brad, that's just too hard and I don't like, I actually like hating people. You, you won't say that out loud, but I'm perfectly comfortable with where I'm at right now and I'm not gonna change a thing. I guarantee there's gonna be people that'll leave this and not do one change. And you know what, time is short. This is a time for you and I to say, let's not just be hearers of the word, but let's be doers. Some of you might say, yeah, whatever. Others might say, Brett, that's just too difficult. You don't know how wrong they were to me. You don't know. I hate them because of the dark evil that they have done to me. But you know, truly Jesus takes the legs out of that argument because what did they do to him as they nailed him to the cross with nails, beat his back to to be like hamburger meat. Like they literally, um, you know, crowned the thorns on his head and hung him on a cross, torturous, brutal death. And while they were crucifying him, he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Even Jesus had this love and, and it takes, you know, be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. Ephesians 4, 31 and 32. Now, some of you, I hate to say it, it's even worse than just saying, yeah, whatever. Maybe worse than even saying, oh, it's just too difficult. Some of you, God forbid, hatred is actually who you are. You're just kind of a hateful person. And you're probably the one trying to get out of this and say, yeah, whatever, I can't wait till the sermon's over. I don't wanna hear about this anymore. And, and you're just really good at being hateful. And I'm tr- not trying to be a mean-spirited pastor here, but you brought your sound a little preachy. Well, that's what I do. <laughs> uh, they, they pay me to do that, uh, preach. Um, but who, you know, what part of you is there that wants to change and say, I, I've gotta stop being a hateful person. I know people that actually do hateful things for a living. It's part of their deal. Um, and there's some people on social media, that's the way they roll, just hateful stuff. And it would change their whole, they would have to cancel their whole social media account to change and do what I'm actually suggesting here. Can you imagine? Can you imagine if some people that are so hateful say, okay, I'm only gonna say kind, loving things on social media from here on out. I'm gonna esteem others as better than myself and be what Jesus really tells us. The good news is some of us hopefully will be convicted in our hearts and ask the Lord, Lord, would you help me to love people and help me to see people the way you see them. Help me to bless them and eulogize them. Help me to pray for them and do good things to them. But whatever person you are, don't forget this. First John chapter four, verse 20 and 21. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, 
he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. I end with the story of Corey Ten Boom. If you know who she is, she was an amazing woman in the World War II Holocaust. Um, and she was thrown in a concentration camp called Buchenwald. Um, and um, they were guilty of hiding Jews, trying to save them from the Nazis, her and her watchmaker father. Uh, quite a story that she had and a torturous. Her sister died, Betsy, died in the concentration camp where they were and her whole family was taken by the Germans and killed. She alone survived with the tattoo on her arm. Um, but after the war had ended, ended Corey Ten Boom dedicated her life to helping survivors heal um, through forgiveness of their former captors. She traveled the world giving sermons and talks about her stories, most of all about her, you know, her heart of she's had to learn how to forgive. On one such occasion, she found herself speaking to a crowd of eager listeners on the topic of forgiveness. In the crowd, a familiar face appeared among the sea of strangers. This face was one that had haunted Corey ever since she had left the Buchenwald concentration camp. Here's some pictures of Buchenwald um, and some of the officers and the, and the prisoners and the barracks there. Um, but there at Buchenwald, um, she looked out as, you know, she saw, as she was speaking about forgiveness, she saw in the crowd one of the faces familiar and it was one of the Nazi uh, uh, soldiers that had tortured her friends and her family. The very one who killed Jews. Um, and he was in the room and she was realizing, oh man, as she was speaking about forgiveness, she realized she still was like, what am I gonna do with this? Here he is right here. Well, after the message that she gave was over that night, you know, it was time to meet and greet some people and what have you. And as she was talking to people, kind of to her shock and horror, really, that man started making his way up to talk to her. And she just didn't know what to do at that moment. But as he was walking up, he reached out his hand to shake her hand. And, and she's like, you know, what am I gonna do? And can you imagine the scripture that popped into her head? Matthew chapter five, verses 43 through 48. The very text of our scripture popped in her head to love her enemy. So she reached out her hand and, and shook this man's hand and chose at that moment, chose to change her mind and love her neighbor and, and love her enemy. Um, she went on and uh, told that story over because it was such a powerful example. I mean, how do you forgive somebody like that? who murdered your family. Um, but one of the things she goes down uh, uh, saying, she, she was born in the 1800s, but she died in uh, 1983. But one of her famous sayings I think is pretty profound. Um, in Corey Ten Boom's own words, God's love is correctly characterized like this. There is no pit so deep that God's love is not deeper still. And if she can say that, a Holocaust survivor, um, I think we should all be able to say that. I, I think few of us, there might be some people in here who've had horrific things, but if she can say that, if the slave um, Paulus can forgive the very guy that murdered his father and sold him as a child to slavery, if Jesus, more importantly, can forgive his tormentors and forgive them before they're even done tormenting him, you and I have no excuse we need to be doers of this challenging word, these amazing words of Jesus uh, to love not only our neighbor as ourself, but even love our enemies. Do good to those that hate you. Um, pray for those who despitefully use you and persecute you. This is what you and I are called to do. May the Lord give us ears to hear what the Spirit would say to the church in Jesus' name.